It's great to be with you. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to 1 Timothy and chapter 3? 1 Timothy and chapter 3. I want to think this morning about how some images of the church are more familiar to us than others, and there are sometimes a, a picture of the church that we operate with that we haven't, we don't really think about very much, and we don't notice is there in Scripture. And there might be some images of the church that you immediately reach for and think the church is, is a family or a household or an army or a body or whatever it is. Maybe the church is God's field or a city on a hill. But then there are some passages or some references to the church which we really don't think about very much at all. And in the passage we're going to read today, Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And it, So we don't really talk about buttresses very much in the modern world, but it's a really powerful image. So this is a, a picture of Notre Dame Cathedral which I'm sure you've heard of, uh, may, maybe visited perhaps in Paris. And pillars and buttresses are used to hold up the roof. And what happens obviously is you have the pillar which stops the roof falling down, and then you have a buttress which stops the roof falling sideways, which I'm sure there are engineering architectural reasons for that that I don't fully understand. But you know, a pillar goes, no, now it's not going to go that way, but then a buttress stops it for sort of subsiding and going that way. And the roof in that analogy of the church for Paul, Paul is saying that the, the, the roof is like the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church is the pillar and the buttress that is there to hold up the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ, to support it, to defend it, and to protect the entire structure from falling in on itself. That's what the church is in this image. So other images, sometimes we think about the church and you think, well, this is almost a self-contained picture. The church is a body in the sense that all of the members work together, as we heard from Andy a few weeks ago in our Holy Spirit series. And that exists almost as an independent metaphor. But in this picture, Paul's saying, actually, the key thing about the church is not the church. The key thing about the church is, is the roof, which is the truth of the gospel. And the reason the church is here is to hold high the truth of the gospel and ensure that it doesn't fall down. It's a very powerful picture. And it shows us something quite surprising, I think, about the gospel, which is that it kind of doesn't stand on its own. The truth is supported by the church underneath it, and it's held in place so that people can see it and understand it, and it's held in place by the household of God. So the church is not like a stud wall. You know, in a home, sometimes you might say, oh, this bedroom is bigger than we need it and we've got two kids, and so we'll put a stud wall down the middle of the room and put one child in one and one child in the other. But the wall is simply there for layout. The church is not that kind of a wall. The church is like a supporting wall, one that if you were to take it away, the house would literally fall down. And we're going to see in a moment that there are a number of things in the contemporary world that make that, uh, that sort of pillar function of the church, that load-bearing function of the church, more important than ever because of the need to stand up for and hold high the truth in the contemporary world. But you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, have been put in place by Almighty God to hold high the truth so that everyone can see it. And our job is to stand strong without bending or subsiding or collapsing. You could say, as I've heard said before, don't just do something, stand there. It's a desire of God for the church to hold high the truth and not to give way underneath it. And we're going to read now 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He mustn't be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of God. The church has always been a pillar and buttress of the truth. There have been moments and centuries where we fulfilled that calling as the people of God, perhaps more effectively than others, but it's always been who we are called to be. It's always been the identity of the church, and that's why Paul places these quite stringent requirements in this passage on elders and deacons and women, or leading women, I think, maybe female deacons. It's hard to know for certain. That's how I read it. But the reason why he says you've got to have high standards for these people leading in the church is because the church is a supporting wall, and if the church falls, the truth falls down as well. So that you've got to make sure that the, the leaders in the church and actually the character and nature and emphasis on truth within the church is strong because if not, the truth of the gospel won't be seen for what it is. That's always been who we are. But there are several features, I think, of the modern world, the world we're in now in 21st century London that make it especially challenging and therefore especially important that the church holds high the truth of the gospel and doesn't give way under the pressures being placed upon it. There are a number of things in the modern society that place pressure on the roof, which is the truth, that actually contend against the truth and present challenges for anybody wanting to declare it. One of those challenges is that truth in the modern world is becoming harder to distinguish from just mere opinion. And you may remember that this happened just after Donald Trump was elected. There was a sort of famous press conference in which uh, Trump had made these claims about how many people had come to see his inauguration compared to Barack Obama's. And he claimed it was bigger. And anybody looking at the photos could tell that it was much smaller. And there was this big sort of blowback against it. And then his, I think it was the press secretary, but some formal spokesperson, a woman called Kellyanne Conway, goes out on the TV rounds and ends up, somebody says, but these are just facts. And she says... Yes, yeah, so I'm presenting alternative facts. Do you remember that? You mean it's a phrase that stuck with me. I thought, wow, alternative facts. That's like a. It's almost like people begin to say something that some. I'm saying this is true, and someone else says, no, no, no. I've got another truth. I've got an alternative fact to your fact. And you think, wow, how, how did we get here that people are 
not distinguishing, and that was a particularly notorious example, but it does reflect a broader trend in a world fueled by social media where people say, actually, these are the facts and the truths that I prefer over those facts and truths. And it actually becomes quite difficult in the modern world to distinguish between truth and opinion. Social media makes our echo chambers louder and it makes our bubbles smaller. So it becomes harder to tell the difference between opinions and truth. And you saw that with Brexit debate, you see it with issues about climate change, you see it with Israel-Gaza, you know, people, people's preferences for who they back on what, on what issue determines which facts they choose and which truths they share and which ones they don't and don't even believe. And fake news has become a thing. And that's just a, that's in the cultural fact. That's not even about the gospel of Jesus at this point. That's simply that our culture struggles more than it used to, to say these things are simply true and these things are false. And that's made, made harder by a number of technological developments in modern culture. Secondly, I think truth is also being harder to distinguish from experience. So sometimes there's people going, I can't tell the difference between truth and opinion, and fake news, all that stuff, but sometimes it's simply, it's more like the my truth thing, that people find it more difficult to distinguish between something that is true and something that is lived or felt experience that might stand against something that is objectively true. A classic statement of that from when I was a teenager, there's a an album by the Manic Street Preachers called This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. You may have heard it, may have listened to it, I don't know. But people often talk that way now. They talk about living my truth, or this is my truth. As a, in fact, the president of Harvard did it a couple of days ago, just, oh, this is my truth, and I probably haven't emphasized my truth. You think, well, this in academic institutions is becoming a normal way of speaking, not this is true versus false, but this is the way I perceive it. I've experienced it. And that also can make it harder for people to say, this, this gospel of Jesus crucified and risen, that's just true. It doesn't matter. You may or may not have experienced it in your own life yet, and we pray that you do, but it's true anyway. That kind of dynamic is harder in a culture like ours. So if somebody says, yeah, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me, that, of course, there are versions of that statement that make sense. You may have experienced this. I have not. That's fine. But when someone says, I, and I say Jesus is died and risen, and someone says, yeah, that might be true for you, but it's not for me. I think, no, 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 this is either something that has happened or it's not, but it's become harder in our culture for people to tell the difference between truth and experience. And so sometimes when someone says, that's true for you and not for me, what they really mean is, that thing you're claiming does not fit with my experience, therefore I am rejecting it. And they're using the language of truth when what they're really referring to is experience. And thirdly, truth is becoming harder to distinguish from power. That's the point of, if you've read a, or seen perhaps a, a movie uh, adaptation of a book like 1984 by George Orwell, this idea that the, sort of the state defines what truth is because it's got so much power, it can tell you what to believe and it can change what the truth is on any given day. And it can say, no, from now on, we are no longer at war with them, we're now friends with them and at war with them. But then they will change the official narrative and say, as of yet, no, we've never been at war with them. We've always been friends of, at war with these guys. They just, and then they throw, it's got, they call it the memory hole. These old, these truths that have expired. They, they used to be things that we believed, now we don't, so they just throw them down the memory hole. So no one knows they ever happened. And in some ways, that's always been a, there's always been a, an association between truth and power. You see that in the story of Jesus and Pilate, you know. Jesus is saying, anyone who's of the truth listens to my voice, and Pilate says, oh, what is truth, and just disappears. So there's always been a bit of this, where if you're in power, you don't have to worry so much about the truth. But under the influence of, 
a lot of you know modern developments, critical theory would be one, but ways of thinking, philo philosophical schools. But a lot of people would say, actually, truth claims are entirely a way of trying to justify power claims. So if I say this is true, it's because I want power over you. That's the only reason. Why else would you say it? It's not really true. It's just you're asserting it to gain power over me. And truth claims seem like they're just spin, and the wages of spin is death. And so we end up with a, a number of factors in the modern world where people are inclined to think that it's difficult to tell anymore what just to state the fact of the truth, and instead people have to say, ah, oh, well, isn't that just opinion? Isn't that just experience? Isn't that just a power play? And if truth is those things, if truth is mere opinion, or it's mere personal narrative, or it's mere power or oppression or whatever, then you, you do risk a post-truth society. Now, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not worried that the whole of society will abandon the truth altogether, because I don't think humans can live that way. But that's obviously what a lot of people in our culture express in some way we are it's now like a post-truth moment and to some degree as a comment on society today there's there's some truth to that and that could sound like really bad news and i think in many ways of course it is as a statement of society but it represents a massive opportunity for the church of jesus christ as the pillar and buttress of the truth holding up the roof because when the roof is falling in supporting walls become incredibly important and you can't live without them so on the one hand, each of those pressures on the roof can encourage the church to bend or to subside or to collapse. But on the other hand, the church has been called not to do those things and has a great opportunity to stand strong even when the roof is falling in. We have to be aware, of course, one of the things that could happen is that those pressures do cause the church gradually to stop declaring the truth and collapse into simply saying, oh, this is my opinion, that's my experience. This is a power play. And if we're not careful, we can do that, even in the way we talk about the, the central truths of the gospel. So then instead of saying, Jesus, as we've just celebrated Christmas, Jesus, came, God came in person in the flesh in Jesus Christ, we can say, I experience you know, a lovely, lovely sense of joy when it's Christmas time, or I, I reflect on what it means for me. Or instead of saying the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we can say my testimony is that, now of course my testimony is wonderful. It's a, I love sharing my story and you do too. But if I reduce the truth about Jesus to my experience, I'm at risk of diluting what is essential about it. I've, I've had this, I was challenged on this as a young preacher in our church in Eastbourne when I was sort of beginning to preach a lot and had this wonderful older woman in the church who's she was the chair of trustees actually and she just she sat down with me and she said you you've got to stop saying look i know i'm only young but or i i know that i haven't been around very long but i'm just think this she said what are you doing but i'm not listening to you because of who you are i'm listening to you because it's the word of god you're supposed to be preaching and if it isn't don't say it and if it is stop apologizing for it I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> to kind of respond and try to change the way I thought about preaching because I was at risk, she was right, I was at risk of turning the declaration of the truth into a series of statements about my perspectives or opinions on it. There's a risk that we can collapse the truth into opinion or we can collapse it into our own experience as well and say, this is what becoming a Christian's meant for me, which was brilliant, we've got to do that. But if that replaces rather than supplements the statement that something has happened in this world, that God did make the world and came into it in Christ and has died and risen to save it and given us his spirit in order to renew all things, 
If we only declare the personal, this is what I feel, rather than this is what God has done, we're at risk again of blurring the distinction between the truth and experience. And so if our testimony is simply, I became a Christian and it made me nicer and happier, that's not in substance any different from saying, I became a vegan and it made me nicer and happier. Whereas if instead you say, no, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, rose from the dead, and is now exalted as Lord of the world, and he's coming back and he's going to renew it. Vegans don't have that. <laughs> There's no lentil version of that story. It's like a, it's a, a much higher claim about the truth with a capital T, not simply something that's happened to me. And actually, there's always a risk we collapse truth into power as well. We can either abuse authority or we can assume that any time someone says something that is, even now as I'm preaching, some people can hear it and think, yeah, it's just because he wants power or it's just because he's trying to get me to do something. And you think, actually, we can collapse truth into power if we're not careful. And it's important we even see that that can be a risk to the church as she witnesses to the gospel. And in that context, and that's, I hope that you can see the scale of the potential challenge for the church, that there are lots of ways in which the pillar of the truth and the buttress of the truth could bend or squish or subside in order to make it a little bit easier for ourselves, but in the end it means the roof falls in. And in that context, the church as the pillar and the buttress is called to confidence and clarity and courage. So distinguishing truth from opinion we're called to confidence. We're called to dialogue with and defend our claims to people who disagree with us. We don't have any interest in alternative facts or fake news or you only say thatism. Right? We can't sort of get into all of those things. Oh, you only say that because you're a you only say that because you're a Christian, or you only say that because you're a Muslim, or you're not a Christian, or whatever. We don't. We we appeal to history, we appeal to public truth. We want people to investigate and explore and debate the realities of Christianity. We say, we've got nothing to hide here. This is a public claim. Either God became flesh and died and rose, or he didn't. If he did, the whole world is different. If he didn't, as you were. And Christians should always be thinking like that. that some of us are perhaps better at that kind of debate than others. But we, at no point do we collapse our gospel witness into a simply private claim about our experience. We share how that public truth has made a private difference, of course, all the time. But what we don't do is reduce the public claim simply to a private experience. Distinguishing truth from experience, we are also called to clarity. We declare what God has done in Jesus Christ and not just telling our story. We, we preach the gospel. We don't just share our faith. We don't just say, this is my journey, though we do. But we also say, this is what God has done. And when everyone's equivocating about the truth, actually declaring this is true and that is false, can speak volumes. Can be a very powerful contrast to the way other people sort of duck and weave and try and because actually sometimes the world is crying out for someone to say, do you know what? That just isn't true. I know it's very fashionable to believe it. I know lots of people are saying it. I know if you read the right newspapers and go to the right universities, you will learn how to say it and how to say it in a way that sounds convincing. But in the end, we all know it's just hooey. That's not the case. This is true instead. And there's something quite appealing about that clarity. It's the story of the emperor's new clothes, really, isn't it? That this, you know, the emperor's just walking down the street wearing nothing at all, but all the adults go, oh, yes, oh, yeah, very beautiful, yeah, wonderful clothing, until a child eventually says, look at the emperor, he's not wearing any clothes. 
and everyone realizes, yeah, we've been taken in by this sophistication, but ultimately there is a very simple explanation here, which is the guy's naked, and we just need to own up to it. And everyone cheers when the child does that. And it actually happened in my version of my, my, my uncle did it to my grandfather. So my, this is as in when my dad is dating my mum, my dad's little brother, who's only about seven, uh, meets my mum's dad, who's quite a big guy at the time. He's dead now, but he wasn't. <laughs> and my uncle Mark says to my grandpa, you're the fattest man I've ever seen. That's his opening line. And it's like, every, of course, there's just desperate, like, what on earth are we going to do? But there's a secret kind of rejoicing that children have that capacity to speak truth by, say, by just pointing out what kind of people already know. And sometimes there's a clarity to that kind of simplicity. Yeah, God made the world. It's not a mistake. God made it. God has entered it. God comes to redeem it. God will make all things new. And then distinguishing truth from power, we're called to courage. We're called to be brave in what we say. Marvelous things can be accomplished when people speak the truth with boldness and are prepared to speak the truth not only when it benefits us, which sometimes it does, but also when it costs us a great deal. And that's an easy thing to say in the course of a sermon because generally in what I'm doing now, Actually, people think more of me when I declare the truth clearly than they do less. But there are plenty of settings in this world, and you live in them, and much of the time so do I, where when you speak the truth, people don't like it very much. And even when people don't like it, the capacity for Christians to say, I'm going to speak with courage here. I'm not going to collapse truth into power. I'm going to say this may get me less influence. It may get me more disregarded. But I'm going to say it anyway because it's just true that actually has enormous power. That'd be hugely helpful. And of course, the history of the church is full of men and women who declared the truth in the face of huge opposition. Even today, people will die for their proclamation of the lordship of Christ in a society that doesn't want to hear it and that strongly doesn't believe it. It probably happen as we, it may even be happening while we're speaking somewhere in the world, tragically. And this is the kind of people the church have always been called to be. And the fact that we live today in a city where that is much less likely to happen than has often been true shouldn't blind us to the fact that that is the way the church is called to be. As a pillar and buttress of the truth, come what may, speaking the gospel with confidence, clarity and courage. So the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth and we face distinct challenges. I've chosen three, but there are others which require a response from us. But I want to finish by making this point. that Although we've talked here a little bit about how we need as individuals perhaps to respond and to challenges that we might face as people, Paul's focus in this section is not ultimately on how you as an individual or me as an individual support the roof, but actually how the church does, how we collectively, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul's emphasis here is not, this is what you need to do to hold up the truth of the gospel, although we do as individuals. This is what we do. This is who we are, the people of God lifting high the truth. And Paul is not ultimately thinking individually here. He's thinking corporately. He's thinking institutionally. The existence of the church, the church with, with a capital C almost, holding high the truth. He's talking about the church as a corporate body, as a household, as a building. I'm not responsible for holding up the roof, nor are you. We are, as the body of Christ. 
And so we have a number of things that Paul walks through in these chapters that we need to do. That's, that's why in this chapter he goes into some detail about how you appoint godly leaders. That's the focus of most of chapter 3. Your overseers, or we would call them elders here, that they need to be like this. We're appointing an elder in a couple of weeks' time in our church. Ernest, it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to pray for him, but effectively looking to him and saying, yeah, you live out these values, and we take that seriously, because if we didn't, the church would be the weaker for it. So we need to appoint godly leaders. We, we need to teach the Bible. That's what chapter 4 is about. That's what I'm doing even as we speak. People will come into the church teaching all sorts of nonsense, and we need to be able to read our Bibles and teach our Bibles and live out our Bibles and say, actually, that's not the truth. This is the truth. And ultimately, we need to do... So if you read chapter 3, it's about appointing leaders. You read chapter 4, it's about teaching clarity against false teaching. But then you read chapter 3 and verse 16, and you see the bit in the middle, which is that ultimately what we need to do is to confess Christ. So we need to appoint godly leaders, and we need to oppose false teaching, but ultimately we need to confess Christ. And this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the heart of the truth we're called to confess. And that beautiful little poem summarizes for Paul what the Christian message, what the, the truth, the roof that we're holding up as pillars and buttresses, what it actually is, the gospel of Christ. Many of us, I suspect, for most of the time, don't feel like pillars or buttresses of anything. We feel more like the bendy struts of a dome tent from the 1990s that you sort of stopped using somewhere around 1997 and then put in the attic and have never used again. And if that's how you feel, be encouraged. The, firstly, because we are not as individuals responsible for holding up the truth, but we are doing it together. The load-bearing wall is not you as a person, it's us together as the church, and we are actually, even in this very meeting, we are holding up one another. We are strengthening one another, reinforcing each other's uh, as sort of struts and load-bearing walls to sustain one another's faith. You should also be encouraged because if God says that we are a pillar, then we are, whether we feel like it or not. This is one of those objective truths that I was talking about earlier. It's not, do you feel like a really strong pillar or do you feel like a slightly squishy? That's, doesn't that, and in some ways, that isn't the issue. The church is. The church has been for thousands of years a pillar and a buttress, whether or not she has felt like she is. And a final reason to be encouraged is that as complicated as it might sound to uphold the truth in a world of fake news and alternative facts and living your truth, the truth we uphold is actually incredibly simple and incredibly beautiful. It is the truth of the person of Jesus Christ, born, lived, died, crucified, risen, exalted. He was, Paul says, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is truth. He is the truth about the world and what you have done in order to rescue the world. He has been made visible to us, even as we've celebrated Christmas these last few days, the glory of Christ manifested in the flesh. 
Thank you for his crucifixion and resurrection, his vindication by the Spirit. Thank you that he's been seen by angels and by people and proclaimed in the world and then finally exalted to sit at the right hand of God from where he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and we pray that you would strengthen us as a local church. We pray you would strengthen us as individual men, women and children. We pray you'd strengthen us as your worldwide global church in the face of pressures like the ones we've talked about to hold up the truth and put Jesus Christ on display as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.